Well, good morning again. Welcome to Church of the City. My name is Russell. I'm a teaching pastor here. This morning, what I want to start with um, is, is a bit of um, conversation, I guess, around the concept of what we're doing in this moment right now. Uh, there's been a lot made over the years about what it looks like to, to teach and preach, and is there a difference between the two, and does it matter if there's a difference between the two, what's actually happening when a group of people get together in an attempt to understand a piece of scripture. And I think it gets kind of lost in the fray when we don't understand clearly what the point is of what's happening right now. And my, my whole life has been a series of people... Um, as this happens to all of us, building an idea of what you are, what I am, that doesn't necessarily help accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. This is my point. My whole life, I've been accused of being a nerd. I mean, it's hard to, hard to fathom, I know. <laughs> but my whole life, and, and it's pretty true, true to form, I, I do geek out over the weirdest and most sometimes unimportant things in the world. But the, the aspect of being intellectually minded or geared when it comes to studying scripture, um, it can serve and be very, very helpful to what we're trying to accomplish, but can also be very detrimental. Being that um, I, I do a bulwark of the, the teaching in our community, um, I want to clarify something for you. And I want, I want to put this out front because the text that we're in uh, this particular uh, week and the weeks coming would be very easy for us to turn them into academic exercise that doesn't do what's being attempted to be done both by this piece of scripture and by our shared time together. See, I, I love approaching the scripture with my mind, but it isn't the fullness of understanding what scripture is. And so this morning, as we lean into our time in the Bible, as we lean into our time around a passage, a piece of what's happening in the scriptures, our goal this morning is not simply to, to learn. Our goal is not simply to gain knowledge. Our goal is not simply to be better informed about the way things were then and what they might be like now. Our attempt is something far more virtuous than that. Our attempt this morning is to let what we learn, what we discover, what we unfold together, actually find inroads into the here and now. In fact, I think that was the whole point of what Jesus was doing as he came to earth in flesh and bones. The incarnation, the arrival of God on earth, breathing and living with blood in his veins, is an attempt to get beyond the knowledge about God and deeper into something like life with God, life with the creator of the universe. Now, if you rewind the tape and you can think back to the beginnings of where the scripture begins for us, describing how things began. They began whole and complete. We call it the Garden of Eden. Um, the storyline is that God created um, humans and was in this very intimate relationship. And by that word relationship, we mean that it was life with God. There's this walking and talking and conversation and relationship. And this is the way the world was intended to be. And then it fell apart. I remember in uh, junior high, in, uh, in my science class, my junior high teacher described what happens when you, when you cook an egg. We've all done this before. You understand it. You crack an egg and you put it on a hot pan. And as soon as you start cooking an egg, it can never go back to being raw again, right? I mean, you, you can never undo that process of it becoming cooked. And that's because what's inside of it, the proteins in it, fundamentally change their shape and the way they arrange together, and they become something a bit different than they were before. 
Much the same way, what happens when things fall apart from the very beginning is that it looks like it can never be undone. That what was broken when people decided that they knew better than God did about how humanity ought to live life, it seemed like the separation between God and people was permanent, was forever. However, this God who created didn't want it to be permanent. And so what we see through the scriptures is this relentless pursuit of people, this relentless unfolding of an attempt to try to, to, re- to show people to recognize that we are separate and distinct because of our own decisions. We call that sin. And that God is attempting to rejoin what seems to be unjoinable, us with him. Now, the arrival of God on earth is, is the backwards way of doing it, where the perspective has always been humans have to get back to relationship with God. God said, no, that's impossible. I will come to you on your terms, in your dust, in your misery, in your pain, and I will love you there. Now, here's, here's the tricky piece of this. When Jesus shows up on earth a little over 2,000 years ago, it didn't fix everything. And that's been a problem for humans for a long time. It just didn't fix everything. What began with Jesus showing up on earth was the beginning of things being resolved but not the fullness of it, not the end of it. And we use language for that. In fact, Jesus uses language for that. And I want to point towards a piece of scripture in, uh, in Matthew just before the section we're going to be looking at today to try to make this point so we can have something to hold on to as we try to understand what's going on. Jesus shows up on earth, and there's a prophecy about him in Isaiah. And, and Matthew, uh, the person who is writing down the story of Jesus, remember he's a close friend of Jesus, um, is relating to people who this individual is, who Jesus is. At this point in the story, by, by the fourth chapter, we have some context about Jesus' birth story and some temptation um, and some time collecting four of his disciples, but we don't really know a ton about him. And what we see him doing after uh, John the Baptist is imprisoned is we see him retreating to his home area in the northern part of Palestine. And he's going from village to village, and he's, he's preaching. And what Matthew says about him is this. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, and this is the description, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, now that's northern Palestine, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, so Jesus is up in this region, north, uh, the north end of Palestine. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. What Matthew says about Jesus is that something primal is shifting. Where there was darkness, there is now light. Even uses a phrase that the psalmist uses, the land of the shadow of death. In that space where things are so dark, a light is dawning. And it's in that context, Jesus begins to preach. And this is his first sermon. This is what he says repeatedly. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this is where we could get lost in the uh, academic work, and this is why I put the precursor out here for us. We need to know something about what's going on, but it can't just stay knowledge because this is the essence of everything that Jesus is. What we need to know is that Jesus is committed to humanity, full stop. He's willing to, to breach the divide between heaven and earth and enter into the painful story of being human. And from that place, he's willing to name it. Heaven's come close. Heaven is on earth right now. 
what was seemingly impossible to bring back together is being brought back together because the king, the creator of the world, has arrived. Now, this particular perspective, I think it's lost on American Christians really quickly. We jump really quickly to, what do I get out of this situation? What kind of things are good for me if the king shows up? Let's not run there too quickly. We need to let it sink in that the creator God, the infinite, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the one that doesn't need anything, chooses to create, and even when that creation frustrates him and saddens him and angers him, he still chooses to love us, to participate with us, to arrive in our shoes in order to demonstrate what he wants for us. See, the fact is, I think many of us as American Christians, we don't think about this very often. We don't think about the implication of God showing up. And when he does, what he says about his arrival is heaven is coming. And not only is it coming, it has already come. The phraseology here, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near, is a concept. We've said this before. It happened in the past. It's current right now in the present and extends indefinitely in the future. When Jesus is born, heaven arrives. Now, like I said, the challenge for us, it didn't fix everything. So heaven showed up. Shouldn't that have like resolved all the pain? Should we not hear the, the sirens outside any longer of an ambulance or fire truck or a police officer? Should the world not be as broken as it is if heaven did arrive? And the answer is, man, that's really, really tough. I think that if God wanted to, he could have resolved everything really quickly. He could have been very just and said, all right, all of you who are broken and sinful, you go on that side over there, and all of you who are perfect and have your life together over here, and all of you who are imperfect, please get away from me, and all of you who are perfect, let's hang out. And the issue would have been, you'd have no one to hang out with. So what he does instead of resolving things too quickly is he begins to unfold his kingdom. He begins to unfold heaven on earth. And as he unfolds heaven and earth for people to take in, he gives us the dignity of not being overwhelmed by it, of not twisting our arm into it. As we see Jesus, as we interact with the storyline of Jesus, it's so dignifying that God doesn't destroy us with our own sinful, painful story or his glorious perfection. He says the two can exist together. You can be broken and have pain and, ha and, and have issues and have things happen to you, and I don't have to destroy you for it. In fact, it's because of that that I love you, and I'm bringing heaven with me. Now, pause here for a second and fast forward to the very end of the storyline. The book of Revelation, you've probably heard of it before. Maybe you've never broken it open, and that's just fine for this particular day of the week. Um, we don't need to get to it right now. But in essence, the, the book of Revelation, daunting as it might be, has one point to it. The point in Revelation is the culmination of what begins when Jesus arrives. The kingdom that began unfolding when Jesus showed up on earth comes fully at some point in the future. And what Matthew's laying out for us here between the two, as he unfolds Jesus for us, as he tries to help us understand what it is that Jesus is all about, and as Jesus himself unpacks what his kingdom initiative is, the view is both ends of this particular timetable. That the beginning storyline of what shows up when heaven arrives and the end storyline, they are continuous. They match one another. One in a very small, modest, humble kind of way as Jesus arrives as an infant, not overwhelming humanity by ripping heaven open and destroying people. And at the end, 
heaven descending to earth as a city with God at its center and humanity gathered in the same place in the same time of all people, all nations around Jesus. What we see between the two, particularly at this front end, is we see Jesus naming the substance of his kingdom. Now, this is hugely important. We can talk about kingdom all day long. We talk about heaven coming to earth. We all have these crazy notions about what it means for heaven to arrive or who Jesus is or what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But Jesus is very clear about what his kingdom ought to be and what it looks like for someone to participate in that kingdom. Now, like I said, when we met together last week and we started unpacking this, this next section, this first major teaching block in Matthew, it's, it's the first of four. Matthew really gives us four big chunks of Jesus kind of unfolding who he is and what he's about. And this first one, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, because as Jesus has gone to all these villages around the Sea of Galilee, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, it's gotten people's attention, so much so that they begin following him, literally, with their feet, walking behind him. It's wild. And it seems like he's not in a particular town center when he looks over his shoulder and he sees a crowd of people who are following him. Talk about creepy. And at some point, he decides to sit everybody down and say, let's just get a few things straight here. Let's just begin for, to name what it is I'm about. You've heard me say this other concept, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now let me expand on that. And the way he starts is with a blessing. And he begins unfolding these blessings. And if we don't hear, like a first century person, what Jesus is saying here, that we will miss the substance of the kingdom. Let me warn you. This blessing section is irregular, it is not expected, it is shocking, and it is very challenging if we actually understand what Jesus is saying. So here in Matthew 5, here's what happens. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. We covered this last week. And we covered this first blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this week, this next blessing, blessed are those who are happy and their life is perfect and they've got their stuff together. Now, you know it, you've heard this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What's your initial emotional response to that kind of language? Maybe you've heard this before and it's not that shocking, but if you can rewind in your own brain and pretend to hear this for the first time and you're hearing the king or someone you might think is the king or someone you might just be interested in following, maybe you just think he's a good rabbi or a great politician and you're interested in what he has to say, say, blessed are those whose pain is out front of them so thoroughly that they are mourning right now for they will be comforted. It isn't exactly the kind of phrase that you use to pump people up or to get people excited about your initiative because it's so sobering. Because when you first read it, and even if you read it a hundred times, every time you come across it, it isn't the kind of thing where we think, that's exactly what I want to think about at this particular moment. We tend to gravitate towards things that make us happy or help us cope with life by pretending life isn't painful. We tend to gravitate towards things that make us enjoy the world around us, not face the reality of how painful it is. 
And Jesus at the front end has used two very challenging concepts of who's blessed. And he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and blessed are those whose pain is at a spot where they are just mourning or will mourn or have mourned. Now this word blessing, we need to wrestle with a little bit. We didn't get to unpack it much last week. We, we have ideas of what it means to be blessed in our country. And typically they revolve around our career path our checkbook, and our health. Those are predominantly our standards of measure when it comes to blessing. Now, there's others as well, maybe family or children or friends, and those are some pretty healthy things. When you, when you get down to it, though, that isn't what Jesus is driving at with this word. In fact, this word, um, typically, it's, it's believed that Matthew originally wrote in Aramaic, not in Greek. Now, a lot of our New Testament is in Greek, uh, because that was the language of the day. It was a common language. Remember, the Romans have conquered a ton of territory, including Palestine, and the common trade language was Greek. So everyone who lived in that day, in that area of the world, spoke Greek, the common language. But if you, if you had a people group that was still somewhat present, like the Jewish community, you would use your other language as well. So everyone knew two languages at least. And Aramaic is the language that came out of this mishmash of Hebrew, and Babylonian and Assyrian culture. And so in the first century, most Jewish people spoke both Aramaic and, uh, and Greek. If you were a rabbi or been through rabbinical school, you probably also spoke Hebrew, the origin language of our Old Testament. So Jesus is probably here at least trilingual, and most of his audience at least has two languages. And if you're, in, if you're a teacher, if you're a rabbi, um, it's believed the majority of teaching around the scriptures or uh, anything around God was usually done in Aramaic because they felt like it was an affront to do it in Greek. So this original sermon that we have here wasn't English. It probably wasn't Greek. It probably wasn't Aramaic. Now, the word here for blessing in Aramaic is richer than our understanding in American English of what the word blessing means. Quite literally, it means may it go well for. May it go well for. And the concept was used on a regular basis. You would greet people with, may it go well for you with whatever you want to say. And as you leave people, you can say the same thing. Make it well for you on your journey. Make it well for you and your family. Make it well for you wherever or whatever it is that seems relevant at the time. Jesus here isn't saying necessarily that the blessing of God as we understand it, wrapped up around getting something good from God, is directly tied to our mourning. That if you mourn, you will become happy. If you, if you mourn, you become wealthy. If you mourn, you get your career path you want. It's not at all what's in view. Jesus is essentially saying, may it go well for you when you mourn. May it go well for those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus is elevating a very painful human experience at the center of his kingdom, for some reason. And if we don't wrestle with why Jesus puts this here, then we will miss a huge feature of what it means to live inside the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Now, bear in mind, these people listening for the first time in the first century on a hillside in Galilee, they would not have associated themselves as part of the Jesus community, but they would have associated themselves as part of the kingdom of God. They're Jewish. And they believed that they had some kind of primacy inside of God's work on earth. They had the temple, they had the scriptures, and they believed about themselves that they were um, part of God's chosen people. And rightly so. Their heritage was 
They're, they're from God's chosen people, from Abraham. The issue is, the belief about what that kingdom was supposed to be wasn't what Jesus is saying here. See, much like American, first, or American 21st century idea of blessing, the first century Jewish concept of kingdom was that of political retribution. That the justice coming for the rest of the world, specifically the Roman Empire, would come through the hand of the king of the Jews. The Jews hadn't had a king for hundreds of years. And the belief was a king would rise up and rule on the seat of David from Jerusalem and overthrow all the oppressors of the Jews. And so you'd expect if someone's going to come saying, I have brought the kingdom with me, I am the king of this kingdom of God, that they would have some pretty strong language. Some language that is confrontational and angry and maybe even vitriolic to the extent of inciting violence. So it's shocking when Jesus here says, it isn't a blessing when you pick up arms and go fight other people. It isn't a blessing to maintain control of your body or your emotions or the people around you. It is a blessing when you go through pain and you mourn loss. Now, to get at what Jesus is saying here, we need to deal with this word mourn. We need to deal with it in an honest kind of way. I've been trying to think around this, and I, I spent time uh, studying original language, trying to figure out in English, and there, there really isn't much to unlock here because we understand what it means to mourn so thoroughly from our human experience that across cultures, this is just a very common concept. In essence, to mourn always means to lose something. To mourn always means to lose something. That can be something like your dignity or wholeness or the way your life you feel like it ought to be. That can crumble and it can produce mourning. It can also be relationship. The loss of a, of a person that you spend a lot of time investing in and for that relationship to break up, to end, can produce mourning. But where we mostly associate this kind of word is in the loss of life and the loss of life of people around us, people we care deeply about. I can't think of a time in my life when I have mourned more or I've mourned harder than losing people I care deeply about. And as I project into my future and think about people I care about right now who are still with me and alive, I can't think about any other response other than mourning when we lose them, when I lose them. The reality is mourning is deeply tied to loss of all kinds, of all stripes. Jesus here is saying, blessed is the loser. May it go well for you when you're the loser. May you be blessed when life breaks down. So Jesus is talking here about a very human experience. And he's only on his second line of his sermon when everything gets real. When he looks at the human story and says, let's just get real and talk about what's really going on here. I'm not here to be a cheerleader. I'm not here to be a conquering hero. I'm here to talk about your real story. About what's really happening inside of your soul, inside of your experiences, inside of your relationships. And in, in an unexpected kind of way, he doesn't say, blessed is the one who hides their mourning really well. Blessed is the one whose loss is buried deep inside of their stomach. 
Blessed is the one who has never experienced the kind of loss that we're talking about. Jesus focuses the center of his kingdom in this line on the people who are the most broken, the most shattered, with the most to lose or have already lost. And says, you, you are the ones who have the kingdom. Remember, this is in view of Jesus unveiling his kingdom. He's arriving saying, I am the king, I'm giving you heaven. And he's saying, at the end of all things, heaven will come and it will come fully. And in the, in the in-between of all that, we live in the mishmash of earth and heaven participating together. And Jesus names that and says, earth is real, pain is real, brokenness is real. Blessed are you when you mourn because there's an opportunity there. An opportunity for the thing that is so desperately needed when we're mourning. Comfort. Blessed are you when you mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Because comfort is real. And what Jesus is saying, what he's naming about the reality of the human story is thorough, complete comfort has been impossible without the king's arrival on earth. Without the king showing up and bringing heaven to earth and undoing what seemed to be impossible to put back together. He's saying comfort is real. Comfort is possible. Blessed are you when you can face your own pain. Blessed are you when you can name the fact that things are not how they're supposed to be. Blessed are you when things are so broken down that your only resolve is an emotional release of mourning. Because with that honesty, with that authenticity, with that understanding of your own situation, comfort will meet you. Comfort will find you. In the very same way, that God put flesh and bones on and came and found humans when we could not go find God. Comfort is here. Now, this particular line, it, it, it's not difficult to get at the words of it, really. I mean, it, it's actually pretty simple language. But it's meaning. That's a different story. It's meaning has so many implications for what it means for us to be human. Now again, the expectation of the first century listener was they were already part of the kingdom. And Jesus here, as this begins to unfold, is revealing things are not the way that they're expected to be. But this whole series we're entitling Upside Down, Backwards, and Dirty because particularly Jesus just upends the whole thing and says it isn't the person who has their life put together, it isn't the person who's going forward, it isn't the person who's clean who has the kingdom, it's the person who's world is upside down. And it's a person whose life is backwards. The person whose life is a dirty who comes to a spot to recognize how much they need God to be with them. And Jesus says that's his kingdom. That's the substance of it. So on the outset, in a first century mind, I can imagine people being really confronted with their view of what the kingdom of heaven actually is. Maybe much like you are as you sit here today, or I am as I sit here today, believing that my version of Christianity or my version of faith is 100% bulletproof and accurate. What we have to do first is we have to let the words of Jesus be the words of Jesus and let them infiltrate our concept of what it means to participate in the kingdom that's unfolding on earth. And we have to let these words come into direct conflict with our assumptions about what it means to be a Christian. Here's what I mean. 
even in this church, even in this community, the majority of us feel the pressure to come and perform as we enter through doors and participate in life together. We feel the need to put on a facade that embodies some kind of weird version of being human where everything's fine always. And Jesus here is saying, that's not it. That's not my kingdom. That's not the way things are. Is it okay to say life is good? Absolutely, when you're asked, how are things? Absolutely. Is it okay to smile when someone greets you because you genuinely like them and want to know them or something? Yeah, that's way okay. What isn't okay is us hiding behind the mask of American Christianity that says you must be perfect or some weird skewed version of perfect. See, the people who are perfectly inside of the kingdom in this particular line are not the people who have their shit together. It's the people who are broken, who are messy, who just can't hack it. And he says to them, you are the ones in the kingdom. You are the ones who are finding comfort, not the one who's pretending their world is okay, but the one who's acknowledging it's not. That has to do its work on us, you guys. It has to be a part of our experience as American Christians in this city, in this time, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Because otherwise, we're selling people a false bill of what Jesus is all about. And that doesn't work. We can't do that. We will lead people into further and further hypocrisy and pain and facade if we're pretending like everything's just fine. Things are not fine. Things are broken. Things are painful. But there's comfort. And that's where we get to point. We have to reframe, I'm not the source and you're not the source of comfort in the world. We aren't the source of hope and joy and forgiveness and love. The king is. And the king who brings the kingdom lets us participate in those things. He lets us give them away, but they're not ours. And we aren't the source of it. We are the ones who are entrusted as those who have received comfort to give comfort away. And that's very different, very different than the majority of American Christianity as it stands today. Second, Jesus here is saying the culmination of the kingdom is consistent with the centerpiece of the kingdom. And as Jesus unveils the centerpiece that people who are dealing with their own brokenness in open and honest kind of ways and finding comfort in that are the kind of people who will find themselves with the king in perpetuity. That means... That for us, we have to look inward. We have to be challenged by Jesus' words so thoroughly that we would look at our own human experience in our own life and be honest with ourselves. Your world is not perfect. Hey, you may snowball the people around you, but inside you know who you are. And as we get older, here's my conviction. Even as someone who's trying to follow Jesus as best as humanly possible, life only gets more complicated. There are more things to think about. There are more people to think about. There are more broken stories to think about. You've made more mistakes. You've accumulated more mistakes. You've been hurt by more people. And yeah, there's comfort in that. And Jesus is saying, I'm meeting you in the middle of that with comfort. But we have to face first that we are still in deep need of God's work in our life. And that need is reflected by the fact that things just aren't perfect in my life or yours. One of the things I love about this church, a lot of things I love about us and about this community and what this community is, is I love that it's a space and a community where, personally for me, 
it is safe for me to be a broken human. Uh, for a long time, when we first started Church of the City, it was so intensive of energy and time. Um, I wouldn't spend much time outside of our church community. Um, I'd be asked to go speak somewhere or share about our church or something, and I turned down a lot of opportunities. And just in the last year or so, I've, I've taken and said yes more often to these opportunities. And so when you're out other places, like this week I was in Boise, Idaho, um, for a few days, and I was there doing some teaching and networking with some other people who are um, interested in our work and what we are as a church, and people invariably ask the question, how's it going? Which I'm convinced doesn't mean anything. It's the worst question to ask anybody about anything. Because you don't, you don't really know what to say. Like, be specific um, about that question. And so I found, and it's, I, I think I'm incurring a bit of pain on the part of the person asking me that question without directly saying, that's an awful question, please ask me another. I answer the question that I really want to answer. And lately, I've been privileged to be able to say, I'm not sure where I'd be in my faith without this community of people that this church is helping me find my own faith. In fact, I've said it as bluntly as, I'm not sure I'd be a Christian without you. That what it means to follow Christ and follow Christ together in the kind of honesty, in the kind of integrity, in the kind of place where I can admit my own brokenness and still find comfort and still find hope, it's saving me. That Jesus is infusing through his Holy Spirit an incarnation of his body here among us. We have to be able to name that. We have to be able to be honest with the fact that things just aren't perfect. And third, we must relentlessly pursue comfort. I think the real risk of us as a church, and this comes from my temperament, um, from Sarah, our executive pastor's temperament, is we, we tend to focus on the negative side of things quite often, and we're not alone in that. Uh, it's easy, and maybe you're wired that way, maybe you're melancholy, and some of you, I know you definitely are, you irritate me to no end that you're perennially happy um, and <laughs> enjoy your world and all that. But it's easy to focus just on how broken things are. The other side of this equation, what Jesus is saying is, my kingdom is a kingdom of comfort. Other words for that. Root words. Love, and joy, and hope, and a future and promise, comfort. See, I don't know all the ways your story's broken. I don't know all the ways you're going through pain right now or will go through pain in the future. What I can say without any hesitation, that you'll experience huge amounts of pain in your life. There's no such thing as a neutral experience. We go through minor pains when someone cuts us off in traffic, and we go through major pains when someone hurts us, harms us, abuses us. We produce a lot of pain with our actions and activities. We all deal with pain. Question is, and the benchmark here for participating in the kingdom is not perfection, is not a lack of pain, is not a lack of dealing with your own really challenging circumstances, some produced by you. It's our willingness to look at Jesus as comfort. A God who shows up and doesn't destroy us because we're not perfect. A God who doesn't cast us off because we smell like the world around us because the world's gotten on us and we're going through huge amounts of difficulty. A God who looks at us and doesn't say, that's just a little too far gone. I'll go work with somebody else. That is comforting. A God who shows up and says, I will give what you ought to give 
so that you can have life. The reality of what Jesus says in these lines is far deeper than an intellectual exercise on what the word mourn or blessing or comfort mean. I have a good friend of uh, mine. He lives in Germany currently. He'll be here uh, this summer spending some time with us. Um, You'll likely meet him. Um, He is somewhat of a tortured soul, uh, as it were, meaning he's... He can't get out of his own way when it comes to the way he thinks about the world. He's very intellectual. Um, and he's, he's very empathetic, empathetic about the world. He feels the world around him. And he and I are quite close, and we talk a lot about these things. We talk almost on a weekly basis. And uh, one of the things I admire about my friend is he has come to a spot in his intellectual prowess where he doesn't rely on his intellect nearly as much as he used to when it comes to his faith. What he's come to, and I admire this, um, also being an intellect, he's come to be what we've termed um, an existential Christian. What that means is a Christian who experiences their faith. And what we're both looking for, and we've challenged each other on this, is we're looking for places where we can see faith tangibly. I think that's what Jesus is trying to spark with these lines when we see our own pain or the pain of people around us, it isn't just intellectual that we would say, you need Jesus. It's experiential when we can say, you were in the prime place to discover Jesus. When we're going through our own pain, it isn't just an intellectual exercise, I need to read my Bible and pray a bit more so that I can find some comfort. It's knowing that the centerpiece of our soul, that Jesus is already there, He's already met us in the middle of our pain. He's already part of our broken story when we are experiencing that loss. So I challenge you. May it go well for you when you experience pain. May it go well for you when your faith is more than intellectual exercise. May it go well for you when you see the pain of people around you. May it go well for you when all that pain amounts to mourning. And may you find comfort. Let's pray. You are such a comfort. And yet, it's such a mystery how you do it because I would have, I would have thought that in order for you to comfort us, God, you would have to be so tangible and present and even now today maybe in flesh and bones with us walking through life. And yet, both what you're saying about who you are and what you actually do in this in-between of your kingdom coming fully is that, God, you still show up and you still participate in life and you still walk with us through really difficult, really painful experiences. God, help us see you. Help us see where you are already with us and for us and in us, giving us comfort through pain. And God, as we mourn, as we deal with our own brokenness, God, let that brokenness do its work, that we might see you and find comfort in you. Pray this in your name. Amen.